Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 118. We are, um, just for the next two weeks, because it's Palm Sunday and Easter, we are going to be um, looking at uh, Psalm 118 this week. And next week, of course, we will revel and rejoice in the Easter uh, story, the Passover, Jesus Christ, resurrection, death and resurrection for us. We're going to look at some passages there. But this week, we're going to look at Psalm 118 together. So uh, if you'll go there, this is, as I said, one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament. If you could make a, uh, a list of popular Psalms to quote, this would be at the top. This would be the one that's quoted more times than any other in the New Testament authors. So let's read together and we'll read all the way through first and then we'll dive in to the text itself. Let's, let's go Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me, and He set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my, is on my side as a helper. I shall look on triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard, so I was falling But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live. And recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely. But he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you 
You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. This is one of those beautiful psalms in the scripture that that is a psalm of worship. It's a, a psalm of praise. In fact, it's one of the last ones that we get that's a kind of coronation psalm in the Bible up to uh, up to 150. This is one of the last ones in there in the list. And so what we have here is this gorgeous praise. And, and I just want you to remember that when ancient Hebrew people would read this, they were singing it. This was a worship song. And that's why you have some of the repetitive measures in there. That's why you have the rhythm. I know that some of us are inclined to hear rhythm and some of us aren't. Um, so those of us who are inclined to hear rhythm heard the bounce of the psalm. You can kind of hear the rhythm of some of the stanzas in there. It can be divided into multiple stanzas. Most scholars divided into five stanzas, pretty uh, easily broken apart. It's pretty simple. It's likely that this psalm was about a king who had been granted victory. We're not told anything about this psalm. Normally psalms have a subscript. Uh, that's in the ancient text, and it's a subscript, and you'll see it. Sometimes your Bibles put it as a heading. Sometimes they'll put it as verse 1. Sometimes they'll put it right before the verse in italics. It depends on what your Bible uh, translators have done. This is a, but this psalm does not give us a subheading. It doesn't give us any indication as to who this is, which is important because the New Testament authors take this psalm and go, this king is Jesus. This king is Jesus. And the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. In the New Testament, it's the great interpreter of the Old Testament. So this psalm is about Jesus as king. Jesus coming as king. In the time period in which it was written, it was probably uh, written about one of the kings having had victory over their uh, surrounding nations or having been spared what looked like trouble. And we can say this with confidence because the text itself tells you that. I was surrounded by my enemies and nations surrounded me. Not just people, but nations surrounded me. The, the language is very kingly. So we can see that this is a, some sort of noble prayer and psalm that was then sung by all of Israel as a way of identifying with this particular king. Likely, this was a king who was granted victory. Second... Uh, this psalm is quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament. It's quoted 13 times throughout the New Testament. Um, it is, is quoted in Hebrews. It's quoted in 1 Peter. It's quoted in the Gospels. And uh, every Gospel quotes it. In particular, with reference to that phrase that we read, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Mixing two psalms together. Jesus is the king coming on a colt. Uh, Zechariah 9, 9, coming on a colt before the people into Jerusalem to be the perfect sacrifice, the king who would reign on the throne for a thousand years in this case, the king who would reign on the throne for eternity, the son of David, this, this Messiah, uh, the king was coming into Jerusalem and the people grabbed their palm, their palm fronds and went out and threw them on the ground, proclaiming, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us. Hosanna, praise God, save us. That's what they're proclaiming as he comes in to Jerusalem at the start of the Passion Week that we know from the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well. 
The song has anywhere from five to eight stanzas, depending on which theologian divides the Hebrew. Uh, Just so you're aware, uh, Hebrew is a fun and difficult language that I enjoy a great deal. Uh, And they didn't divide stanzas for you in the ancient text. They assumed that you would grasp most of them. There are a few places where there are stanzas divided out, like Psalm 119, where they're divided all throughout. But most of the time, we are doing our best to identify where the stanzas of these psalms are based on context and an occasional dash or double dot thing. Um, I'm calling it a double dot thing. It's it's the end of a Hebrew sentence, which is two star-looking dots at the end of a sentence. So we have... uh, Anywhere from five to eight stanzas. The stanzas are not incredibly important, but there are two requests made in this psalm, and I hope you caught them. One is, open the gates. Open the gates of righteousness to us. And two is, save us. Those are the two requests made in this psalm. Save us, or deliver us, and open the gates. The statements... Uh, in general, are made about the Lord, about Yahweh. Now, that's what Lord in all caps is. It's the tetragrammaton, the, the name of God that we don't necessarily know how to pronounce. Some people say Jehovah. Some people say Yahweh. Either way, you're leaning on Eastern or Western scholarship for either one of those translations, for either one of those verbalizations of this ancient tetragrammaton that God gives Moses in uh, Exodus 3. So this is the, one of the last coronation psalms in the Psalter. And it points to Jesus as the cornerstone. It identifies him as the Lord. And it identifies the Lord and Jesus together as one poetically. In particular in verse 14 and 15, we can see that it identifies Jesus and the Lord, Yahweh, as one. Look at that verse just real quick. Verse 14 and 15. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. And the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So you are seeing there the connection of Yahweh with the one who brings salvation with the right hand of the Lord. Almost being personified there. The right hand of the Lord being connected. And it's a poetic connection of the, the King or the Lord Jesus, as we know from the New Testament, with Yahweh. And this reminds us, this psalm, first before we read anything, reminds us that we have a King. That we have a King and a Lord. And isn't it great to know that when we look around at our current political system? Isn't it great to know that we have a King as we... Go forward in the year. Isn't it great to know that there is no other king? That he's the only king. He's the king above all kings. And he's ours. He's our king. He's our king because Jesus Christ died on the cross, taking the sins of those who would believe upon himself and rose again that you would have life and that you would have life abundant and free and that you would be his and you'd belong to him and you'd be his child you'd be adopted into the kingdom so 
Let's dive right into this text here in verse 1. All that was precursor. Let's jump in. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. This was a call and response song. We see it constantly in Hebrew uh, in the Psalter where we have this call and response where somebody would say something like, uh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And then let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the people say, and they'd go back and forth. This was the beginning of a chant song where they are singing to the Lord. So this uh, they are responding, and let's look at this response first. The, this is how the psalm begins and how the psalm ends. Jump to verse uh, 29, or 28 rather. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. You've got this, juxt- you've got this bookend here of the psalm where he praises him with the same phrase at the beginning and the end, and then he alters the first, the second phrase in the first part and the first phrase in the second part to give you a just slightly different definition. So look at what he says here. First, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. This is the generic word tov that we see all throughout the Bible. It's the intrinsic word for good. It's just simple good. It's the same one that we use to say everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was Tove in their own eyes, Everyone, or she was beautiful, is she was Tove in his eyes, she was good in his eyes. This is a generic term that is used across the scripture. It's the basic term for good. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for he is right, for he is kind. Whatever word you would supply there as good, this is basic good. The Lord is that which is basically good. And this should automatically snap in your brain Genesis chapter 1, the creation narrative, when God says, sees what is good, says it's good, and it's good. God sees, he makes something with his mouth, he sees it's good, and he calls it good. And it's because God is the author of all that is good. God is the author of all that is good. He is the one who determines what is good. He is the one who determines what is not good. He is the one that chooses good and evil. He is the one that knows good. He is the identifier of good. If you want to know what good is, if you want to know what a good life is, if you want to know what what peace and joy and happiness and, and love and all the things that we think are good, if you want to know those, they are found in Him and in Him alone. He is the one who establishes those. When we try to establish our own good in Scripture, it always goes wrong. Genesis chapter 3, what does it say of Eve? She saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes. It was tove to the eyes. And it would be good for food. It would be tove for food. She could eat it. She saw those things. She saw, she sees with her eyes and proclaims with her mouth by eating of the fruit that it is good. That what God has said is evil is good. All through Scripture we see this happen. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. 
whenever somebody's about to sin, you always see this phrase that's, it was right in his eyes. It was good in his eyes. It was tov in his eyes. That's over and over. This is a generic term for good, but it's, it's the term that we see is so critical for us to understand the nature and character of God and how that God moves inside us is that he is always good. And he is the author of good. He's the one who defines that which is good. He is good. Second, his love endures forever. And this is the Hebrew word hesed, right? This, this word, loving, merciful, kindness that never fails, is always faithful. It's the word that I failed Hebrew in the first time because I didn't fail. I, I failed that test. But the Hebrew test that I had to take where the guy said, define hesed. And he gave us a line that was like this long. And Hesed is a three-paragraph definition. And so I went to him after the test. I had written merciful faithfulness. And he, I went to, and he gave me a, a, like half off on the question. And I went to him and I said, you didn't give us enough space. That I said, the best I can do in a short space is to say steadfast, loving, loyal kindness that never fails, is always faithful, and is merciful even to the wicked, And to the kind, that's what God's hesed is. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, if you had written that, I still would have marked off because it's inadequate. And I was so frustrated. And I said, Dr. Tatum, you don't make any sense. How can I possibly get an A on this test if the definition for hesed is so great? And he said, that's the point. And I was, I was shocked. I went, you intend for no one to pass this test? And he said, I intend for everyone to understand that they cannot possibly fathom the depth of the love of God. And I went, okay, all right, I guess it's fine. Hesed, that's this word, mercy. We translate it mercy, we translate it faithfulness, we translate it loving kindness. I'm grateful that we live in a place where we speak English and it's a beggar's language and we don't have to, we don't have to, English is a, is a language that we have one word for love. There are, there are five in Greek, dozens in Hebrew. This is a, we have a beggar's language. I'm, I'm thankful for that because I don't think I could grasp all the nuances of every other language. Um, and, and just nail them. Like, I don't think I could, I could connect with everything. But this is Hesed. This is God's love for us. It's the love that's displayed in the cross. It's the love that's displayed throughout the Old Testament to a God who shows mercy to a people who don't deserve mercy. It's, a, it's the love all throughout the Old Testament to a God who is gracious and patient to what he calls a stiff-necked people who hate him. It's the love of God to people who do not want to be loved. And then there's this threefold thing here. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, let the house of Aaron say, and let those who fear the Lord say. And we've got this threefold build. We've got the house of Israel, the nation of people who were called by God. We've got the priests in the middle. The priests are the intermediaries who are called out of that people to bring those people to God. And then we've got all those who fear the Lord. That covers everybody else. That covers every, every tribe, tongue, and nation that would repent and believe and trust in Him. Even in the Old Testament. I want this to be clear. Even in the Old Testament, the gospel was present. Even in the Old Testament, anyone, any tribe, tongue, nation could repent and believe in Christ. 
they could be saved. There were specific ways in which proselytes could become Jews. And we see it modeled throughout the Old Testament. Think about Joshua. Joshua and Caleb. Did you know Caleb is a Kenite? That is not a tribe of the Jews. His father was a Kenite. That is a Canaanite tribe. Shamgar is a judge of Israel. He's a judge. He's one of the guys that's put in charge. Shamgar is a Canaanite name. That's not a Jewish name. Ruth is a Moabitess. She's in the lineage of Jesus. She's a Moabitess. Oh, God has always been gracious to the nations. Even the promise given to Abraham was that his seed, the offspring of Abraham, would bless the nations. That all would see the glory of God. That that this mercy would extend to all who would believe. That he was calling nations to himself. And that he would bring them. So you've got those chosen by God. You've got the intermediaries. And you've got those who fear God. Those who are chosen. And those who choose. Those who engage with that John chapter 6 verse 37. All who the Father gives me will come to me. And all who come to me I will not cast out. There's the activity of man in the response. And there's the activity of God in the drawing. Somehow. It's this incredible picture. But we have a better high priest than, the, than Aaron. In Hebrews chapter 7, we have a better high priest than Aaron. We have the high priest, Jesus Christ, of the order of Melchizedek, the righteous king of heaven. We have the, the high priest who brings us before the Father, who has made a better way for us, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so the result of this psalm, the result of these recognitions that are in this psalm is there in chapter 28, I mean in verse 28. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. I will extol you. I will give thanks to you. I will give gratitude to God because he has, he is God and he's my God. So first and foremost, remember you have a king. You have a king and your king is God. Can anyone overcome that? Can there be any defeat of a man whose king is God? No. Can the world overcome that? No. There are testimony after testimony after testimony in the books of our uh, church histories and our in our uh, our denominations and our backgrounds and all these things. There's there's testimony after testimony of the martyrs and the saints who have stood the test of Jesus. Being king. It's been proven throughout history. It's proven through scripture. It's proven in my own life. It will be proven in yours too. That when you have a king, there's nothing that can overcome you. And when your king is God, nothing can overcome you. Nothing can weigh you down so much that you are destroyed. We are pressed but not crushed. Persecuted, not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. We care about this life. We care about in this, our body of death so that others may have life. We are unstoppable because of our King. 
and because of what he has done. So rest in the psalm. Rest in this psalm that he is the king. The rest of the psalm is given to the process, I believe, of getting to gratitude and joy or worship. So let's get to verse 5. Out of my distress, and we're going to handle this, I'm dividing these stanzas, verse 5 through 9 here is one stanza. So let's read this together. Out of my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. You've got kind of a thesis statement there. I called on the Lord out of distress. He answered me and set me free. How did he he do that? Verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. So first, you've got the thesis. The Lord, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. And the Lord answered me and set me free. Just let that rest first. Let that rest on you first. That he calls to the Lord out of his distress And the Lord answers him. God answers his people. God answers his people. He listens to you when you pray. That doesn't make any sense. Let that land on you. That that doesn't make sense. The creator of the universe listens to you. Own your crazy. This is one of the crazy truths of knowing and worshiping Jesus Christ, that you have a direct line to the creator of the universe. I put it this way often. There are ants in my yard. I don't listen to them. And we are so much infinitely smaller than an ant to God. Yet he listens to us and he knows every hair that's on our head and he talks with us and he engages with us and we get to speak to him. That is crazy and awesome and beautiful and wonderful that you can speak to him and he answers out of your distress. He answers you and he set you free. He set me free. That's what he says. Out of, his, out of my distress, he, I called to him and he answered me and set me free. So he set me free from what? From oppressors, probably. From those who were gathered around him, definitely. He set this, in this course of this psalm, as we talked about at the beginning, it's probably about a king. He set this king free from the oppressors and the nations that had surrounded him. He set him free from those things. He set them free from uh, oppressors. So, and when we get that because he says, um, he, what can man do to me? Like, that's his next response for what can man do to me? He's, this is my God. Man can't do anything to me, to me or, or anything. He, he set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When our hearts are focused on the Lord, when our hearts and minds are focused on the Lord, this is our attitude. What can man do to me? It's not, that's not critical. What man is trying to do to me is not going to hurt me because I know that the Lord is the one in charge. So if our minds and hearts are set on the Lord, we, we get this confidence that man can't defeat us. Man can't do anything to us. So just 
a couple things. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it says that our inheritance is stored up in heaven and secured by him. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says that our salvation is secured by the promised seal of the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, it says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. If your mind is focused on the Lord, you get peace. It's a simple A-B. Your mind is focused on the Lord, you get peace. You get freedom from fear through an understanding of future victory. Look at that there. He says, what can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as a helper. I shall look on, I shall look in triumph on him who hates me. I shall look in triumph on him who hates me. So not only do you get peace because you understand eternal value and you understand that you are under the guide of the Lord, you also get peace because of future victory. You know that there will be triumph in the future. If you don't know that there will be triumph in the future, read your Bible. It's all through it. I would say read the end of the book, but it's in every verse. It's in every passage. It's in every story of the scripture. God wins. In every single one, you can have confidence in future grace. In the grace that will be in the future for you. No matter where you are now. No matter where you are now. No matter what this life looks like right now. No matter how difficult things are for you in this moment. There is a grace and future grace that is promised to us. There is a heaven that is promised to us. There is a king who is returning for us. There is a victory that will be in our hands, and we will look on triumph over those who have hated. We will look on triumph either those will be converted or condemned. Either those who hate us will be converted and will become brothers and sisters, or they will be condemned. The scripture is clear that right now is the time for repentance and faith in Jesus. So we call to every person we meet that they would repent and believe and trust in Christ, trusting wholeheartedly that the Holy Spirit is going to move in those that God has ordained and and in those who trust in Him, they will be saved. The Holy Spirit is going to move in their hearts and they are going to repent and they are going to trust Him and we make that call to everyone, to every person. Repent and believe knowing full well that God will save. Knowing full well that God will save and we will look on triumph over those who hate in two ways. One, and the one we want right now is the one where we call to somebody and we say, you need to repent and believe and trust in Jesus and they do and we get family. We get brothers and sisters. And then the one that troubles even the heart of God when he says, I do not delight in the death of the wicked, even the heart of God at the end there will be condemnation for those who do not believe. Those who have rejected the call of Christ, those who have turned their back and scorned Him, those who have embraced sin, there will be condemnation for them and we will will rejoice to see God's justice. And we will love Him for His mercy. And we will, I believe, share the same not delighting in the death of the wicked. 
Because if that's the heart of God and He's given me His heart, there's going to be some sense in which I share that, right? So, we pray now that people would repent and believe and trust in Him and we could rejoice. By conversion, they would be redeemed. Then we have this verse 8 and 9. Now, I was told as I was growing up that this is the middle verse of the Bible. If you were told that, it's a hyperbolic statement. It's not actually true. The middle verse of the Bible is somewhere around Psalm 103, verses 2 and 4, or something, 2 through 4, or 2, 2 and 3. The, this is not the middle central verse of the Bible, but it contains a truth that, that kind of is expansive. And so a lot of people have read it and gone, this is the central verse of the Bible. Pastors love to do that, by the way. We love to find things that can stick in your brain and you can remember forever. This is, so I'm, I'm telling you this so you'll remember these verses because this is not the central voice verse of the Bible, but it is very, a rather important one. Let's read it. It is better to take refuge in Yahweh. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than it is to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than it is to trust in princes. So right here, you have this call to trust the Lord. We're going to jump back to that in a second. Let's read verses 10 through 13. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. So you've got this rhythm, and I hope you heard it, that the name of the Lord, I cut them off. The name of the Lord, I cut them off. The name of the Lord, I cut them off. And then he breaks the rhythm there at the last. The Lord helped me. The Lord helped me. He does that on purpose. He's got this response of man. And this, this passage, this, this stanza, kind of jumps back up to the previous one and ties together with it. If you look closely, you'll see... In the name of the Lord, I cut them off, matching what we have here with, uh, with the Lord giving victory. Like, the Lord brings victory. He set me free. What can man do to me? I shall look on triumph over those who hate me. That's in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. That's the eternal perspective from this world's perspective, from our vision, from where we can see. So the first half kind of gives you an eternal perspective of God giving you victory and triumph. And then the second half gives us what it looks like for us. Well, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. So let's think about that first for a minute. The name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord has two primary ideas. Two general ideological meanings or philosophical meanings here. One is on behalf of. So when you do something in the name of someone, you do it on behalf of that person. You do it on behalf of the, in the name of Spain, I claim this land, right? And you put a flag in the ground and you say, it's mine. It belongs to Spain now, which is weird. Colonialism was strange, right? We come over and we say, this is where I put my flag. Therefore, I own this plot of land. We did it to the moon. That's how great Americans are. We went up to the moon and we stuck a flag in there. Mine, right? Like that's, that's what we did. So this is... This is in the name of, in the name of the United States of America. We put a flag on the moon. We said it belongs to us, which is weird. So, same, that's, that's one concept of in the name of. So, on behalf of. It's a legitimate one. John 13, Jesus says, love one another, for by this 
all will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So in the name of Jesus, we love one another as representatives of him. We show love to the world around us as his representatives. So we are working in the name of the Lord, in the name of Jesus. Second thing that this means, though, in Scripture, second thing that this means is that you are doing it in the power and provision of something. So in the name of the Lord, in the power and provision of the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is often personified in Scripture as a place of protection. In fact, we've got this uh, painting up here. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. That is Proverbs 18 verse 10. Right? This is the name of the Lord being this place of provision and protection and defense. And if you are in the name of the Lord, you are in his power, in his care, in his protection, both metaphorically and actually in Scripture. This is one of the spiritual truths that comes out in life, that you are in the name of the Lord able to do things that otherwise you would not be able to do. On the spiritual end, some of those things are things like pray to God. You would not be able to pray to the Lord if you were not in the name of the Lord. If you did not have the name of Jesus covering you, you would not be able to call on him. And in a sense, you would not be able to overcome victory. Because as Isaiah says, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Everything I can do on my own is filthy rags. I can't, I can't be righteous on my own. But in Christ Jesus, I am made righteous and thereby made to be able to overcome sin and be righteous before the Lord. He made him to be sin who, who knew no sin that we might become what? Become the righteousness of God. We might actually live in righteousness and holiness. This is a beautiful thing. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. And this is the Hebrew concept of removal of the flesh. The circumcision word. That's what this word is. It's the cutting off. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I cut them off and threw them away. Right? That's the image that we're getting here. And then at the end there, it says, I was pushed. That the Lord helped me, or the Lord is my help, helper. It ties right back up to the earlier portion in verse 7 when it says, The Lord is on my side as a helper. He is my helper. Did you know that in the Bible the Lord is called your helper over 300 times? That term is used to describe Eve in Genesis chapter 2, and then it's used over and over almost constantly for the Lord after that. This is a beautiful term. This concept of God helping you to be who you are designed to be by Him more than that, helping you out of your distress and giving you life where there was death. This is powerful and beautiful. And then we have that central binding remark. Trust in the Lord over men and princes. In context, this would... This verse 8 and 9 here would go to imagine, just for a moment, bear with me. Imagine being a king and you've got nations surrounding you who are pressing in on all sides. You've got internal squabbles with inside your, uh, with inside your own cabinet. You've got people trying to do coups and trying to overthrow you. You've got nations literally coming to your door demanding tribute because you're smaller than they are and they have an army outside. Imagine being in that place. 
it would be tempting to do the political thing. To go have the backroom meetings with the right cabinet members so as to manipulate your way to victory. You'd be considered shrewd. You'd be considered smart. You'd be considered a good leader because that's what good leaders do. They have the right meetings in private so that when the public meeting happens, they've got it all situated. You'd be considered good. You would be considered clever to, if Assyria is marching on your front door to make a pact with Egypt, the other great power, you would be considered shrewd as a king in Canaan. You'd be considered wise to to go to that person that you know is slightly adversarial to the other person. I mean, after all, the art of war is not wrong when it says the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's a clever way to do it. Sun Tzu was not wrong when he said that one of the best ways to vanquish your enemies is to get all of his enemies on your side and then do nothing and let them tear themselves apart. That's shrewd, but it's not God's way. It's not God's way. God's way says to trust the Lord. It says the Lord is my defender. I will trust on him. It says I will look to the hills from whence does my help come from. My help comes from the Lord, not from other people, not from other nations, not from other manipulative situations, not from going to talk to the right person, not from engaging in gossip the right way, not from going to to manipulate things behind the scenes so that when it happens in public, it gets saved. No, we are an honest and transparent people because we trust a Lord who is greater than all of that. We trust the Lord who is greater than all of that. We are honest and transparent before the Lord. We are honest and transparent before each other. We do nothing in private. Backroom meetings and private discussions are a scourge on the American church. And if I stay talking about that, I'm going to talk forever. So we're going to move. Um, Note, it is better to trust in the Lord than it is to trust in princes. It is better to trust in the Lord than it is to trust in any man. We trust in God to save us. Jehovah Magananu, he is the Lord, my defender. He is the one who saves me. He is Jehovah Makodesh Kem. He is the one who sanctifies me and makes me holy. He is the one who I'm worried about. He is the one that I want to talk with. He is the one I trust to defend me. If you are in a space in your life right now where there are people gathering around and amassing around you, hear the words of the psalm. It is better to trust in the Lord than it is to work your own way out or to do anything to solve it on yourself or to seek the help of men. It is better to trust in the Lord. Better to trust in the Lord than it is to trust in anything, anyone else. So jump down to verse 14 now. We've got this previously. We've got this. He calls out of his distress. He trusts in the name of the Lord. The Lord helps him. The Lord raises him up. The Lord rescues him. And then in verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Strength and song in the Bible are intrinsically linked. 
You can find this over and over. When there's a victory, people sing. When they get strengthened by the Lord, there's singing. When there is strength, there is song. This is how strength is exemplified in Scripture. I don't know why God decided that singing would be so important, but for some reason it is. So if you don't like to sing, tough. In the Scripture... He talks about singing and says to do it. You don't have to sing pretty. Nowhere in scripture does it say make a pretty noise to the Lord. It's a joyful noise and it's a noise. Noises are wonderful and they are not pretty. You hear them all the time. We have children. You know what noise sounds like. Make a joyful noise. Not an angry one. Lift up a cry before the Lord. Sing with, and make melody in your heart. That melody is never described as beautiful. It is often described as simply a melody. Because the Lord is the author of music. Do you think that you can impress him with your sound? I learned to play a few chords on the piano when I was newly married. My wife is a classical pianist by trade. I sat down to show her what I had learned, and I was very proud. <laughs> and she was very gracious, as all women should be to their husbands. She was very gracious. That's good, John. That's what I got. That's good, John. And then she said, did you practice the lesson I gave you? I said, no, I learned the chords. <laughs> and she said, that's good. I'll play. <laughs> this is beautiful. The Lord is the author of song. For some reason, he created us with this intrinsic need to sing, especially when we have victory. Think about it. When they cross over the Red Sea, what's the first thing they do? They sing. When they have victory in the book of Joshua, they sing. When they walk around, they walk around the, the city of Jericho seven times, they play trumpet. Like, I know it's a horn. I understand. You know, I get that it's a cry, a battle cry horn, but it's a trumpet. Like, that's what they're playing. It's music. God seems to really, really like song and music so much so that at the end of the days, every tribe, tongue, and nation in their own tongue sing before the Lord the same song because he likes music. So strength and song are intrinsically linked. We see this in Exodus 15.2 in Psalm 28.7 in Isaiah 12.2. We sing because we are rescued and we dwell in righteousness. Look, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. So we sing because we dwell in tents of righteousness. Now just jump ahead. We're getting to see Jesus show up in this text. Abide in me and I in you. You will make your dwelling place in Jesus in John chapter 15. He will be our dwelling place in Revelation. We will dwell with him and he will be our dwelling place. The righteous lamb of God has become where we live. So we are able to be strong and sing because we dwell in the Lord. We make our dwelling place 
in him. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Oh, Christian, if you want to sing beautiful songs in your heart before the Lord, this is how. Lean heavily into Jesus. Abide in Christ. Know him and know his word. Jump to verse 17 and 18 here. You say, I shall not die, but I shall live. And recount the deeds of the Lord. Don't worry, we're going back to the righteous thus valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. And the Lord, the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. Look at this. I shall not die is lined up here with salvation and dwelling in tents of righteousness. I shall not die. I'm going to dwell in the tents of righteousness. I'm going to, I'm going to be saved and I'm going to be in the tents of righteousness. They line up together here. And then it says here in verse 17, I will recount the deeds of the Lord. That is song. That's the same as verse 14 when it says, I will sing. Uh, strength and salvation has become my strength and my song. He, I will sing. That's this idea of recounting the deeds of the Lord. When we sing, that's what we're doing. We're recounting the deeds of the Lord. So I will recount the deeds of the Lord. And then we've got this, the Lord disciplined me. The Lord disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. He's disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. We know from the scripture in the New Testament in particular that we should not despise the discipline of the Lord for it is for our good. We should not despise the chastisement of the Lord for it is to strengthen us and bind us up. It is to discipline us and to make us whole. So we don't despise the discipline of the Lord. Why? Because... The discipline of the Lord is what strengthens us. The discipline of the Lord is what strengthens us and not just chastisement. I think that sometimes in, in our beggar's language, we get, we get confused and we think of discipline as only punishment. It's not only punishment. When we talk about discipline, be it church discipline, personal discipline, group discipline, we are talking about working out together. The discipline of being Christian. Of being with one another. The Lord disciplines you as a father. As a father disciplines his kids. Not as a master disciplines his slaves. But as a father disciplines his kids. When I discipline my children, I want to do the same thing that I'm calling them to do. I model it for them. I walk alongside them. I help them with it. A good father is one who will tell his child to do something. And when the child does not do it, they will go to that child and they will tell them again with what is going to happen if they don't do it. And when the child does not do it, they will follow through with that and then they get on their hands and knees and do it with the child. They don't stop at punishment. They stop when the task is done. And discipline is working the task with the person. Same goes for discipline in every other area of life. We have a rule here that if you, uh, if you are going to call somebody out of sin, you better be ready to wrestle with them through it. You better be ready to walk through it with them and help them overcome it. Because that's what discipline is. 
Discipline gets on the ground with your kid when they won't clean up and shows them how to clean up. Oh, it leads them to do it. And there is chastisement. But that's not where it ends. You get in the dirt with people. Jesus got in the dirt with us. God came down to be with us, to walk with us. What do you think it means when he's standing in front of all those people who are going to stone that poor woman that they drug out, that they trapped and drug out, and they threw her down in John chapter 8? What do you think it means when it says he knelt down to the dirt and started writing with the finger that, oh, it's beautiful, and oh, I wish we could stop. But he kneels down to the dirt and he writes in the dirt with his hands. He's modeling for you what God is doing in that moment, coming down to earth and rewriting the hearts of dirt Adams, us, people, rewriting their hearts. And he stands up and he goes, um, who among you has no sin? And, and they drop their rocks and walk away. And he so graciously, what does he do when he says that question? Kneels back down to the dirt. To get into the dirt. And to work with us. That is the discipline of God. So he says here that... that the Lord disciplined me severely, but that's strengthening for us. This is strengthening for us. It's the way that he does with us. And then you've got this middle section where it says the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. That's Hebrew poetry. That means great, 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 right? When you repeat something over and over in Hebrew, when we repeat something, we put a great in front of it. Or when we want something to sound really good, we put a great in front of it. We go, uh, this was he's really awesome. Like, he's really awesome. In Hebrew, you'd say he's awesome, awesome, awesome. Right? So he's repeating something here. The right hand of the Lord, the right hand of the Lord, the right hand of the Lord. He's letting you know that this right hand of the Lord, the hand of purpose, the hand of work, the hand of strength, does what is right. Does what is right. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The hand of the Lord does what is right. It does what is good. It acts valiantly. It is a righteous and strong hand. It does what is good. Jesus says he goes to sit at the right hand of God, identifying himself with the right hand of God. I am God's right hand. That's the way we would have said it in medieval times. I am his right hand. Nowadays, we'd say he's the right hand man. Right? This is what Jesus is identifying. He is the right hand of God. He is the valiant one. He is the one who does right. He is the one who does good. He is the one that the Lord exalts. He is the right hand who stands in victory over all. When we walk with the Lord, we rest in the right hand of Jesus Christ. We rest in his work and what he has done. It's not because we've done something good that we walk with him. It's because he is good. It's because he is good. Verse 19, we have the, the requests here in this passage. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Now, as a theologian when, and a thinker, I thought about this passage and it says, open to me the gates of righteousness. And you're trained when you preach and teach often, you're trained to think questions in response to things. So open to me the gates of righteousness. And I went, I wonder what the gates of righteousness are. That was my immediate thought. And I love this passage because he tells you right after. 
And I point this out because many people would have stopped and jumped around, which I did, confessing my own error, would have jumped around and been like, look up every passage where it says the gates of the righteous and look up all of them and read all of them. And it was a very good exercise. If you want to do it, it's worthwhile, but not necessary to understand this passage because he tells you what it is right there in the next verse. What are the gates of the righteous, Lord? This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. So the gate of the Lord is the salvation of God. This is the gate, the way into his temple, the way into his house, and the righteous go through it. That's a consistent theme throughout scripture, isn't it? That the way of the Lord is the way of the righteous. The righteous will go through the gates of the Lord. The Lord will land on the mount and split the mountain in two, and the righteous will go through that to the Lord. He will make a highway to himself in Zechariah. There's this, there's this constant image of God making a way through the gate into his holy presence. Now, in the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, you've got this crowd amassed and Jesus shows up on a colt. This is what he's exemplifying. Open to me the gates of righteousness. Lord, give me salvation. Let me in the gates. That's the request. Jesus goes before us opening the gates of righteousness that we can go in. That we can go in. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter into them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He opens the gate. We go through with him. He opens the gate for us to worship the Lord. And then he says the cornerstone that the builders is the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is identified as this in 1 Peter chapter 3 in or chapter 2 where he says that he is the cornerstone. In Acts when he preaches to the people he says this is the cornerstone of whom it was prophesied that the stone that the builders rejected would become the cornerstone. Jesus is it. Now, if you're not familiar with a cornerstone, just real quickly, a cornerstone is the first stone that you lay in an ancient building, and everything else comes off that stone. It is the key to the foundation. If that cornerstone is somehow flawed, wrong, or done in error, you got problems at the base of your building. It will not be level. It will not be plumb. It will not be right. It will fall apart. I mean, it'll take time. But like so much shoddy construction that we see today with cracks in walls and things shifting constantly and the need for foundation repair all over the world, all over the states, that is because of faulty design, faulty foundation, which happens in ancient times when you were building with cornerstones that were wrong. So this is the cornerstone upon whom everything else is built. Jesus is the capstone of everything else. He's the cornerstone. He's the chief. He's the one by which you plumb line everything. He is the center focus of all of life. In the church, he is the center focus of all we do. He is the very reason we gather. He is the reason that we stand and talk for an hour. He is the reason we sing. He is the reason we eat food together. He's the reason 
we delight in each other. He's the reason. He is a delight, and He is our delight. He is our cornerstone, and He is the one that the world has rejected. So salvation has come through Him coming into the gate and opening the gate for us. Open up the gates to us, Lord. Jesus has done that. We get righteousness because of Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. We stand before God in clothes of white, clean before Him. Verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. I love that this verse is there. Because it is our experience on this earth. We know we have victory in Jesus. We know that the, that the world can do nothing around us. We know that nothing can defeat the mind that has stayed on him and we will have peace when our minds are set on him. We know that we have in Christ, we have overcome all things. We know this and yet we still with honesty call to our Lord, save us, O Lord, we pray. Lord, give us success. Give us victory, Lord, please. Lord, please, it's so honest. I love this about this psalm. In all of the victory and the Lord answering us in the calls of distress, we still at our heart desperately need to call out to Him. We still in our heart desperately need to go save us, Lord. Save us, Lord. And it's not like an obsessive, like I'm going to lock myself in my closet and weep and cry and shake and go, please save me. No, it's a, it's a I recognize that where I am, I'm having trouble seeing the victory. And I know, Lord, that it's coming. And I know that I've already got it in Christ. I know that I'm already victorious over this sin. I know that I've already achieved this discipline because of Jesus doing it for me. I know that I've already got these things. I know that he's the true and better everything. I know that. I can sing it with confidence and I can trust in it. And yet still, at my core, I go, please, Lord, don't leave me. He's right there and he's with me at all times. And yet I still need to say, Lord, save me. And that's okay. That's why I love this passage. Because that's okay. Evidently, the psalmist did it. The psalmist did it. And don't think Jesus didn't understand it either. We have this incredible picture in the garden. Why do you think that's there? He's bleeding on a rock because of the stress. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus understood this prayer. Indeed, he's the one by whom we're allowed to say it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then this phrase, praise to Yahweh, praise to the Lord, praise to Jesus here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the name. Remember what we talked about. In the name, in the power, in the strength, in the guidance, in the personification of the Lord. In the name. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We will bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. There's the Aaronic blessing right there. Aaron blessing the people. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he cause his light to shine upon you. Same thing that Peter does in uh, 
in First Peter, into his marvelous light in which we have come. Right? So this is the same concept. The Lord has made his light to shine upon us and bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Oh, that's a fun one to study, by the way. If you ever want to study that, go to Leviticus, read through the way they were supposed to do the festal offerings or the feast offerings. Go through and read the way they're supposed to do all of those. He says, bind this thing, bring a thanks offering. That's specifically what's being referenced here. Bring a thanks offering before the Lord, an offering of gratitude. This is not an offering of atonement. Why? Because the king has already walked in through the gate. King has already walked in through the gate. We come now with offerings of thanks and gratitude. This is how we got here. This is how you're able to give thanks to God. You are able to give thanks to God because Jesus, the perfect lamb, has already gone through the gate. And he's already made the sacrifice for you. The lamb has become, the lion of the tribe of Judah has become the lamb. And we are saved we are rescued. The atonement sacrifice has been done. So the psalmist sees that the gates have been opened to the righteous who have been made righteous in Christ. This psalmist sees that and goes, so what do we do? We bring thanks to him. We get to bring thanks to him. And we, we bring them and we bind them to the, to the horns of the altar. We bring our thanks offerings and we lay them at the feet of God. We, we give all that we can thank him for to him and we lay them there. He has rescued, and everybody who comes brings gratitude before him. And we conclude the psalm again with this, You are my God, I will give thanks to you. Why are we able to give thanks? We are able to give thanks and bring the offering of gratitude because he has gone before us and brought atonement. Because he has satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. And we get salvation. So imagine standing outside of Jerusalem on the day of Palm Sunday, on the, on the, on the day of uh, triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, and this homeless rabbi comes riding in. On, and I say it that way on purpose. It's supposed to bother you. This homeless rabbi comes riding in on a donkey, and everybody goes nuts. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, save me, save me, save me. And he comes riding in and goes in first to the city of God to lay down his life on your behalf so that you could give thanks in his name for salvation having come to you. That is what happened on the triumphal entry. That's what we remember this morning on Palm Sunday every year. That's what we remember. That a way has been made for us to give thanks to the Lord in freedom and in truth. He sets free from sin and death and we have life and life abundant in Him because of what Christ has done. Oh, give thanks to the Lord and let's say it together. For his steadfast love endures forever. Again, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Father, we love you and we trust you in all things. As we come to a time of communion together now, and we remember the Lamb of God slain for us, Lord, we pray that you would um, remind us of what this is.
your body broken for us, your blood poured out for us. And that we would have life and life eternal. Lord, we love you. Amen. As we come and sing this song, I would urge you to uh, confess before the Lord any, anything that you are harboring. Now's your opportunity to confess to Him, release those things, and trust in Him for salvation. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, this is for you. This is for us. Let's remind ourselves of what this is and behold the Lamb together. Behold the Lamb who takes our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. So we share